Well, good evening. Part 11. Unbelievable how quickly this semester went. But we have two more sessions to go, and we want to start number 11 after we pray. So pray with me, please. God, as we often do, we thank you for your word that you've given us, uh, the perspicuity of Scripture. It's clear. It's uh, in propositional statements. It's in black and white. It's in our language. It's uh, logical, cogent able for us to dig into it. Even in our daily Bible readings, we read through some of the difficulty of prophecy in Daniel. We recognize some of it is layered in uh, apocalyptic uh, genres and so forth that make it difficult, but there's so many things that are so crystal clear and easy for us to comprehend. I pray, God, that tonight as we hone and, and clarify and sharpen our focus on a few of these matters that are so often misunderstood today, that you'd give us real clear thinking, uh, unanimity here, that we'd be able to harmoniously connect with these truths and uh, think carefully through them, methodically through them, and be able to uh, really arrive at the, uh, at the biblical conclusions on these matters. Thanks for the chance that we have to study. Thanks for this room, this building, for uh, just even the dollars to pay the rent every month and to pay the electric bill and for all the provision that you give us. We're thankful. We don't want to take it for granted, so we want to begin our 11th session in our semester here with the hearts that are anticipating you to Teach us something through this outline and through these passages that we'll look at tonight. So govern our time. Give us a good, very educational, instructive, and edifying time tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Well, to be a biblically-centered church, which is the number one thing on our values list, the things that we believe should characterize the church, not just our doctrinal statement, that's always important to look at when it comes to church, but then our values, the things that characterize how we do church. The first one is that we believe that the Bible is central. And that's critical because though you may think that's out of order, God should be first. See, we won't understand God correctly unless we have this commitment to biblical centricity. And by that, what we mean is we want to make sure that the Bible is the primary definer. It's the arbiter. It's the thing that clarifies for us. Uh, it, is the, uh, it is the source of our information, and so often as we've tried to, sometimes in a nuanced way, as we, as we work through the problems and the confusions on so many matters, is we say things like this, that we want to make sure that we allow the Bible to define our experience, and we don't want our experience uh, to, to muddle and, and define the Bible. We don't want any confusion in bringing our own presuppositions to the text. Though the philosophers will say no one purely comes to the text with no presuppositions, we want to do the best we can to let the text speak for itself. That's why when we talk about some of the implications of that, we get on to expository preaching. We want to make sure that the Bible uses the preacher to preach its message. We don't want the Bible to be used by the preacher to preach the, the preacher's message. And, and that, when we get to levels of theology like we're dealing with tonight, and even throughout this series on a couple of occasions, we've had to make sure that we don't bring our definitions to the terms that relate to the church. Uh, for instance, we, we've dealt a lot with, on, on a few occasions in the lecture series, things that uh, would help us define what a pastor is. We've looked at presbyteros, poimen, episkopos. We've tried to define those biblically so that when someone on the church patio says, does your church have elders, right? We want to answer that question biblically because we bring biblical definitions to a question like that. We don't bring our definitions, our cultural definitions, modern definitions, and then read those back into the text, see? Uh, and, And if you ask the question, does your church have elders? The answer is, duh, right? That'd be a good way to start it. I'm not condescendingly, but I mean, in your mind, you think that, of course we do, right? Right? Presbyteros. We have presbyteros, appointment, episkopos. These are the same words 
uh, that are used synonymously throughout the New Testament to describe that top level of, of leadership in the church. Now, so of course we do, but that's not what they mean, right? They mean their preconceived idea of what they've experienced in their culture. They bring that question with their meaning to that, and so we have confusion. And, and the problem with that is, it would be one thing to say, do you have uh, non-professional lay people leading the church? That's a different question, but that really is the question they're asking. Uh, see, but the, when you ask it with biblical terms, it seems to carry biblical authority and biblical weight, right? If I ask that question, you say, well, we don't have what you're talking about, right? Then for some, oh, now it's, you're, you're not doing something biblical. When we deal with the issue that we're going to start to work through tonight, uh, the question of membership, it's the same thing. We need to make sure that we're defining membership biblically. Okay? Because when someone says something like, does your church have membership, if you're a part of Compass Bible Church, right? that's a question that if you say, uh, well, yes or no, you may try to answer that question based on what they have brought into that, that word. Well, what do you mean by that? See, Because at the end of tonight, I hope, or even by the time we're halfway through tonight, someone says, do you have a membership? You say, duh. Right? Of, of course we do. Right? You need to make sure, though, that we're defining those words biblically if you're going to use a biblical word to try and carry biblical authority into the question. Right? That's what we need to do. So you need to be very careful about letting the Bible be central in every discussion and the Bible define the terms and make sure that we have no confusion on, on that matter. So all of that to preface something that uh, I think needs to start with a very important distinction, an important distinction regarding the use of this word. And, and I'll, I'll just I'll posit it this way. We need to, to distinguish between cultural membership right, and biblical membership. Okay? The word member is in the Bible. It is what we use in the church to describe something about how people relate to the organization. But there's a cultural definition to that that's a little different. Okay? And, and, and that has to do with uh, something we usually see as a contractual, a uh, formalized, ceremonial, sometimes legal, formal kind of, of, of policied connection. Okay? The Mission Viejo Country Club, for instance, has membership. I played that course several times. I'm not a member. See what I'm saying? Well, what's the deal with that? Well, there's something you have to do, namely have a lot of money, uh, to be a member there. Sorry. <laughs> just didn't mean to sound like a have-not there. But uh, you, you have to do something. You have to qualify. There needs to be some things you do and fill out and money that you pay to be a member there. If you ask, do you, do you play there? Have you played there? I could say, yeah. Uh, I could even, and it's not true, I could even say, I play there a lot. I might play there more than a lot of members play there, right? And yet, you'd ask me, are you a member? I know what you mean by that. What you mean by that is, are you a card-carrying, formalized, you know, sign-on-the-dotted-line, paying member? Is there that contractual relationship between you and that country club, okay? That's the question being asked, right? Now, now that is the cultural definition. There's nothing wrong with that. Are you a member of, the, uh, of, of LA Fitness, okay? ask you that. And some of you say, well, I've been there many times. There's a lot of ways to work the system on all these places, right? I'm not suggesting you do that, where you could work out there more than most of the members work out there and never be a member there. But we know what you mean if someone says, are you a member at LA Fitness? You could answer yes or no based on what? Did I formalize a relationship, sign a contract? Is there an exchange here, a quid pro quo of money and privileges and rights and all of that? Have I, have I had that legal connection with that organization? Um, a member of the, you know, I don't know, 
AAA, member of the Republican Party. You can see where, for instance, and I even uh, referenced this in, in talking that through so far, you could be a member of these things in a formalized, uh, contractual way and really not participate in it at all, right? You could have a membership to the country club and never play golf there and never do any of the social events there. And you have that membership in your file cabinet and some card in your wallet if they do that. I don't know. I'm not a member of any country club. But never go there. You could be a member of the AAA and hope, oh, I hope I never need it, right? Uh, And there's a sense in which I have that as kind of an insurance policy. It's the way a lot of people view their connection to a church, by the way. Be a member of the Republican Party, and then occasionally I try to vote, or I feel like I should, and I maybe never involved in politics. I never get involved in any of the things that are that are offered there, or that I could do there. That's far different than biblical membership. When the Bible uses the word membership, it means something different than a contractual, formalized, legal, or ceremonial relationship with an organization. Uh, and we'll look at that as we define it, and we'll try to define it. By, we'll try to define it with the biblical words. And, and as I was preparing this, I thought, well, this is just a good old-fashioned word study. And if you don't like word studies, you're not going to like this. Uh, just a fun, I'm trying to preface it so you can enjoy what's coming here, a fun, exciting, thrilling, enthused word study. I do enjoy them. So uh, let's do a word study on the word member. Now, of course, we're in a receptor language. We're not studying the Bible, uh, most of you, I assume, in the original languages. We're studying the Bible in a receptor language. That means that someone has to translate it from the original language that the Bible was written in, in Hebrew, Aramaic, and Greek. In this case, we're going to study New Testament ecclesiology. So we want to look at the New Testament, what it says about membership. So you're going to be reading your Bible, and you're going to see the word member here, 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 and here. And now we need to say, okay, well, wait a minute. Let's see how that is translated. There are four words right, that, that that word comes from, and I should probably get a worksheet here. You all have one, right? You have a chart. Oh, week 11, I realized we didn't have enough charts this semester. So let's work through this chart. And I didn't go to all the trouble of reproducing the chart, but I've got the, 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 the divisions of the chart here. We're going to work down column one. I've got the Greek word transliterated there for you. And if you're uh, just dying to see Greek, I thought I'd throw it on the screen as well. Bulietos, right? Bulietes, uh, long e. Bulietes. That that word, okay, is translated uh, um, member in the Bible. Let's look at it. Okay, definition. I got definition, occurrence, ESV translation, and usage. Let's start with the definition. Small box here. I realize, but try and put this in. Bulietes is is coming from the word uh, to consult. Right? To consult. It means someone who is participating in the consultation. I mean, that's really what the word means, to officially or have some authoritative voice in the participation of the council. It is, I mean, if you knew Greek, it, you'd see this is, a connect, this is the word, a form of the word council or to consult. Okay, occurrences in the New Testament, only two. Only twice does this show up, and if you want completeness, the box is small, I realize, Mark 15 and Luke 23. Mark 15, Luke 23, two times you'll be reading your Bible along, and Mark 15, Luke 23, you're going to see the word in English, member, and it's going to translate this word, boliutes. Okay? The ESV translates it both times this way, literally, one word in Greek translated these four words, member of the council, member of the council, member of the council. Member. Now remember, it's really not the word member, it's the word of the council, if you will, or one who consults in the council. 
But because of the form of the word and how it's used here, adjectivally, we're describing someone who's a part of the council, an official member of the council. Okay? It's used literally, someone who is of the council, of one person in two synoptic gospels, Mark and Luke, of Joseph of Arimathea. And as he's introduced there and we see that he gives Jesus his tomb, he's described as someone who is literally of the council. Translation, member of the council. Uh, The council, of course, that we're referring to is the Sanhedrin, though it's not spelled out. Uh, That in context culturally is what we're dealing with here. He's the member of the Sanhedrin, which was the high ruling court of the Jews under the watchful eye of the Romans at the time. Mark 15, 43, Luke 23, 50 of the council. That has nothing to do with what we're dealing with in ecclesiology. But the word member shows up there. But no, sometimes, and I hope you realize this, we talk enough about the original languages in our study throughout Compass Bible Church. Often we have something that takes four words in English to translate one word in the original language, and the components of that aren't there. Uh, There's no confusion because these are highly inflected languages, uh, well, especially Greek is, and they're translating that phrase. If you have an interlinear or if you have logos and you look at this word, you'll see little arrows going back to one Greek word. If you use the logos, the bottom ribbon there, and you'll recognize, okay, when we see this word, translates four words, member of the council, but what it really literally is meaning is of the council, one who consults on the council, okay? Simple. That was easy. Throw away. Number two, right? Soon somas. Soon somas. Soon somas. I say it that way because it's a compound word. Uh, Definition occurrences, translation, and usage. Let's start with definition. Literally, soon is the Greek preposition together or with. And the second word, uh, somas, uh, is, is the form of the word body. Soma is usually the dictionary lexical form of the word body. Soon somas or soma. Soon somas. It means uh, with the body, together with the body. Okay? Only one occurrence in the New Testament of this word. Only one time it shows up in the Greek New Testament. And that's in Ephesians chapter 3, verse number 6. Let me read it for you. Ephesians 3, 6. This mystery is that the Gentiles, Paul writes, are fellow heirs and soon somas. Yeah, that's just one simple word. Right? together with the body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. The ESV translates that, soon somas, members of the same body. One, two, three, four, five English words translate soon somas. You can see, because you're reading along, the mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and soon somas. They're with the body, together with the body, and partakers of the promise of Christ Jesus through the gospel. Okay? Soon somas. The usage, obviously, is a metaphorical usage. It's not a literal usage, like of the council. Joseph Arimathea was literally of the council. See, soon somas, there's no body here. Soma is metaphorical. With the body, what we're saying is the Gentiles now are a part of God's program. They are with now the body, the work, the economy of God in working salvation out in the, in the Jewish people is now to the Gentiles as well. The Gentiles have been brought in, brought near. They're soon somas. They're together with the redemptive work God is doing in the body of Jews. Salvation to the Jew first and also to the Greek, to quote Romans 1. Okay, simple enough. Did that all fit in the squares I gave you? Yes, brilliantly done. Excellent. Okay, if you've taken any Greek, this is a major simple vocabulary word here. Oikos is the, is the noun form, right? Oikos is the word for, uh, is an adjectival form of that word oikos. And oikos, 
uh, simply means house, right? This is the adjectival form of house, of the house, literally, of the house, okay? Now, this only shows up twice in the New Testament, this form of the word house, the adjective of the house. The ESV translates it the same, in essence, both times, member of his household and member of the household. You'll find this twice. Now, again, member of his household, four words. Member of the household, four words, one word, simply an adjective based on the noun house, oikos, and it means of the house, okay? Now, the usage is both literal and metaphorical. The first one is 1 Timothy 5.8. 1 Timothy 5.8. I'll read it for you. But if anyone does not provide for his relatives, especially for, right, oiketos, right, the, the, the members of his house, Oikios, sorry, uh, members of his household. Then he's denied the faith, faith and he's worse than an unbeliever, okay? So literally of the same house. If you don't provide for those who are of the same house as yours, right, or of the same home, obviously we're not just talking about, you know, the, the walls, but we're talking about the people that are part of that, that biological structure there of your home, well, then you're worse than an unbeliever. You need to financially support them of the house. Much like Arimathea, Joseph of Arimathea was of the council, people in your home, your parents in this regard, or your grandparents, that's how the context of 1 Timothy 5 uh, leads us to envision the older folks that need help. Those people are of our household, of our house, and in those days, usually lived under your roof, you have to take care of them. That's a literal usage of this word. Ephesians 2.19 is the second, and this is metaphorical, okay? And again, it's much like uh, our second word, sunsomos, this is the word uh, or the idea of being part of the same redeemed group. I'll read some context for you. This is 18. I'll start in verse 18. For through him, through Christ, we, we both, Jews and Gentiles, have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you're no longer strangers and aliens, uh, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you are oikos, the verbal form, or the adjectival form. You are of the house. Then it adds the words of God, built on the foundation uh, of the apostles and prophets, and on it goes. This is used both literally and metaphorically. Now, we don't live all together in the same oikos, the same house with, uh, you know, all these people. Uh, but this is metaphorical of being a part of the same redeemed group that God has saved, of the household of God, of the same household. Okay, great. Still, getting closer to what we're used to hearing. This is the big word, and probably these boxes are too small, but I tried to make it the biggest boxes on the chart. But let's talk about this. Melos. Melos. Definition, occurrences, translation, usage. Definition. This definition means a limb or an appendage of a biological organism, something that, you know, is growing off the side of this body, a limb, an appendage, okay? Member. This is used now 34 times in the Greek New Testament, all over the place. I mean, compared to the others, at least. Translates four different ways in the New Testament, at least in the ESV, which really follows most literal translations. Either member or members, 28 times. Okay? Member or members, 28 times. Twice, you've got it used as parts. Parts. And if you want to put next to that, 1 Corinthians 12, both times it's used in 1 Corinthians 12 and translated parts when it says, as it is, there are many parts, yet one body. That's verse 20. There are many parts, yet one body. There are many mellows, right, appendages or limbs, and yet there's one body. Verse 22 is the second time that's used and translated part. On the contrary, the mellows of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. The 
melos, or the parts of the body, the members of the body that seem to be weaker, the appendages of the body, the limbs of the body, they're indispensable. Members, or member 28, parts twice, you twice, and if you want completeness here, this is Colossians 3, 5, and James 4, 1. Colossians 3, 5, James 4, 1, translated you. Note the context here and you'll get it. Colossians 3, 5, familiar verse. Put to death, therefore, what is earthly in you, the ESV translates it. And then he goes on to list some things. Sexual immorality, impurity, passion, evil desires, covetousness, idolatry, all those things. Put to death whatever's earthly in you. Some translations translate it in your members. Whatever's earthly or fleshly or, or, or not heavenly in your body members, your parts, your appendages, right? Uh, put that to death. All of that is a metaphorical sentence. James 4. What causes quarrels and fights among you, literally, among the parts of your body? Is it not the passions that wage war within you? Two times, if you're adding this up so far, we're not quite to 34, we need two more. Uh, It's not translated twice. Why wouldn't it be translated? Because some Greek sentences keep throwing the word out, and it gets bulky. And the one that does this in the same verse twice is... 1 Corinthians 12, 26. And in 1 Corinthians 12, 26, we have the word melos four times in a very short sentence. I'll read it for you, throwing in the Greek word. If one melos suffers, all melos suffer together. If one melos is honored, all melos rejoice together. Now, if you translate that literally, you'd have a very wordy sentence. If one member suffers, all members suffer together. If one member is honored, all members rejoice together. ESV translators, like a lot of translators, choose to simply say, if one member suffers, all suffer together. They don't repeat the word melos, though it's in there a second time in that phrase. If another member is honored, then all rejoice together. That just helps to smooth out the reading of the text and nothing is lost in the translation other than the fact that we don't have a wordy sentence that repeats the word member four times in one sentence. So it's not translated twice and you understand why, right? You have to translate things sometimes. Languages like Greek will pile on the same word many times in the same sentence. They take them out, still readable, no loss of understanding there. Okay, got that? Members, 28, parts 2, you 2, untranslated twice. That should equal 34, does it? Yes, I'm slow on my math, but there it goes. Usage. This is the important part. Usage. It is used literally to refer to, in the language of the text and the verse, an appendage or limb of the body. Okay? That's one way that it is meant to be understood. Now, out of 34 times, how many times do you think in the Bible it's referring to a literal appendage out of 34? I don't know. There's no prize for this, but what do you think? How many? Yeah, you don't know. But think that maybe, maybe there's an answer in your head more than you think. 22 times out of 34 times. 22 times out of 34 references. You're going to start to see whatever we're going to come to in terms of what it means to relate to a church. Uh, It's going to be a very small number here. But when we're talking about the word melos that's translated member, right, 22 of those times we mean a literal member. Now, some of them are in the context of an analogy, but a lot of them aren't. Some examples... Uh, Matthew 5, 29 and 30. That's a familiar text. You know that. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out and throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of the members of your body, right, than to have your whole body thrown into hell. One of the members, right, your eye. Better to lose your eye. That's a part of your body. And if your right hand causes you to sin, the next verse repeats this, cut it off, throw it away. For it is better for you to lose one of your members, right, your, your right hand, than to have your whole body cast into hell. Now, that's a literal 
usage of the word. It wants you to think I is a member, a part, an appendage, a, a, a component of my body. And my right hand is a component of my body, a part, an appendage of my body, a limb, uh, literal. James 3.5, look at ships. Uh, they're driven by large uh, and, and, and strong winds. They're guided by very small rudder wherever the pilot desires. So also the tongue is a small member, and yet it boasts of great things. Now, he's trying to make you think literally of that little hunk of meat inside of your mouth that you speak with. It, and literally, it's the member, the part, the appendage, the, 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 the growth in your mouth, the, your tongue. Uh, and, and that's the literal usage of it. 22 out of 34 times. It's trying to get us to understand something literal, okay? Secondly, metaphorical use. Metaphorical use in this regard of Christian bodies, literally your body, right, belonging to Christ. But it's metaphorical in the context that your body right now belongs to him, and it's like being an appendage of him. Now, you're not an appendage of Christ. You're not a literal appendage of Christ. But in the context of this usage, which shows up twice in one verse, it's trying to get us to understand how closely allied we are with Christ, that it's like we're an appendage of his body. And you know the, the passage, I'm sure, 1 Corinthians 6.15. 1 Corinthians 6.15, let me read it for you. Do you not know that your bodies are melos of Christ? Right? Shall I take a melos of Christ and make it a melos of a prostitute? Never. May it never be. That's the second, or the third reference to it is the second meaning here, a metaphorical meaning of a, an appendage of a prostitute. Let me read it again. Don't you know that your bodies are members of Christ, parts of Christ, appendages of Christ? Shall I take the appendage of Christ, my body, and make it an appendage of a prostitute? Shall I connect my body with a prostitute? No, that's one time. Metaphorical, I'm con my body is connected, so allied with Christ, it's like I'm a part of him. I, would I take a part of Christ and make it a part of a prostitute? No, shouldn't do that, okay? Fourthly, we're finally down to the one we're used to thinking about. Number four, it is metaphorical of Christians belonging to the same fellowship. Now, we've taken a lot of the lists of the words in the Bible where you see the word member, and we've gone through it, and we've jettisoned those and saying that's not what we're talking about. When someone uses the word member in a church context, we usually think of this one. Someone is a part of the fellowship. Are you a member of that church? That's what we ask. This is a very small portion of the variety of definitions that we have. We've had one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight definitions so far. Metaphorical. Okay? This meaning only shows up in the Bible nine times. Now, I've got to be fair here in saying that some of the times that a physical appendage is being described, and we should understand it hermeneutically, we should interpret it as a physical member of the body, it's an analogy for talking about the connection to the fellowship. And the biggest example of that is the intertwining of the usages in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. 1 Corinthians chapter 12. Let's turn to that text and spend a little bit of time here, familiar passage showing you the word melos throughout it and how that is both used literally and metaphorically. In this context, not of my body connected to Christ, but my body, or my, my body, my, my life connected to the fellowship that I fellowship with. In this case, the Christians in Corinth associated with the other Christians, the fellowship, the body, metaphorical use of the word body, at Corinth. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Let's start there. 1 Corinthians 12, 12. Melos. For just as the body, soma, by the way, that's the word soma, is one, it's a unit, it's one unit, it has many melos, many parts, many members, many appendages. Now, again, I'm supposed to think here literally, because this is an illustration. A body has a lot of 
things connected to it. And all the melos of the body, though many, are just one body, so it is with Christ. You've got a lot of variety of, of things here connected to the body, components of the body, but they're all one body. That's the way it is with Christ. For in one spirit, we were all baptized, placed into one body. There's the metaphor that's trying to be bridged together with this. Jew or Greek, slave or free, we were all made to drink of one spirit, verse 14, for the body does not consist of one melos, but many. If the foot should say, now we're talking very literally about the the illustration, getting you to think about the foot, because I'm not a hand, I don't belong to the, the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I'm not an eye, I don't belong to the body, what that would not make it any less a part of the body. Verse 17, for if the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of, of, of uh, hearing be, right? If the whole body were an ear, where would, where, where would be the sense of smell? As it is, God has arranged the melos in the body, the, the appendages of the body, in this case, talking about us, each one of them, as he chose. If all were a single melos, where would the body be? Couldn't function if we were all the same. As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and on those parts of the body we think less honorable, we bestow greater honor, and on the unpresentable parts they're treated with greater modesty, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the parts that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, and that the melos may have the same care for one another. If one melos suffers, all melos suffer together. If one melos is honored, all melos rejoice together. Now, if you are of the if you are the body of Christ, then you are individually melos of it. Okay. The other text that you should know and jot down, I'll quickly read them for you, is Ephesians four twenty five and Ephesians five twenty eight through thirty which simply says, 425, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are melos of one another. We are connected, metaphorically, belonging to the same group of people. Come on, we're a team. You're connected here. Ephesians 528 through 30. In the same way, husbands, you got to love your wives as your own bodies. There's another analogy of this. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but he nourishes it and cherishes it just as Christ does the church, because we are melos of his body. We're connected to his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and shall hold to his wife, who shall become one flesh. Now, this mystery is profound, but what I'm saying refers to Christ and the church. Now, I'm using this as a metaphorical use of Christians connected together, and there's a lot of things happening in this text, but the picture is of us connected with Christ, but the application is that together we care for one another. And, and that connection there is illustrated by marriage. But the idea is we belong to one another. We are members of his body, all of us. And the last one is Romans 12, 5. Romans 12, 5. Actually, 4 and 5. 4 is the literal use of the word melos. For as in one body there are many melos, and the members do not all have the same function. This is really a, a restatement of 1 Corinthians 12. So we, though we're many, are one body in Christ and individually melos of one another. We're connected to one another. We're related to one another. Okay. Now that's just the raw word study. And I hope you filled that in there. And that's a good place to start. Now we need to draw some principles from the analogy and make a few observations as it relates to the concept of membership. This may seem like overkill, but you've just looked at every reference to the, or at least referred to every reference of the word member in the Bible. It's a good place to start. 
and you've seen the distinctions I trust and followed that. Let's talk about principles drawn from the analogy, the biblical analogy, okay? This is just summarizing them all. If you were to lay them all out on the table, like I've done, and just sat there and, and looked at them and tried to group them together, what are the things we learn about the analogy as it relates to the church and us being connected to it? Nine usages that d- directly speak to that. What can we summarize? Well, number one, clearly what we're talking about in, these, in this analogy, certainly as 1 Corinthians 6 highlights, is that we together are all inseparably related to Christ. And I have to start there because melos is simply a subset of the analogy of soma. Parts or members or appendages or limbs is just a subset of the analogy of soma, which is body, which is not head. The analogy starts there. Christ is the head. We are inseparably linked to the head. We are the body. He is the head. You're an appendage of the body, and that relates us to one another, but we're all connected organically, relationally to Christ. Christ, head, people, body, we are individually melos, components, appendages, limbs of the body. And that, in that regard, we should never see the church or our connection with one another absent our thinking about Christ. Because you can say you're a foot, you're a hand, you're an eye, you're an ear, but really none of it makes any sense without the brain, if you will, and that's Christ. He's the head of it all. He's the one who makes sense of the whole thing. This is why we're here. We're not here. We're not a country club. We're not here for golf. We're not here for you know, auto repair. We're not here for uh, gym, you know, working our bodies out. We are here to honor Christ. We're all inseparably related. And Melos certainly brings that principle to the fore. Number two, Christians... This is the big point in 1 Corinthians 12, or one of the big points, should be content to serve differing roles in the church. And if you know where this is going in 1 Corinthians 12, we got 1 Corinthians 12, all about connectedness, 1 Corinthians 13, love, 1 Corinthians 14, the, 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 the uh, abuse of the gifts in the church. And that whole connection of those passages together is making the point, listen, you're not all going to be doing the same things in the church, and you ought to be content with that. And we even read enough of 1 Corinthians 12 to underscore that point in our own minds. We are fine if we're a toe or an ear or an elbow, fine. We're content to serve in differing roles. We don't all have to be the same, and we ought to know that and feel right about that. Verse 12 simply says, just the body's one, many members, all the members of the body are many but we are one body in Christ, so it is in Christ, and we're content with that. Number three, every role in the church is important. And we read that clearly throughout, that the parts that seem weaker, they're indispensable. The parts that we, we cover up in, in, you know, are not presentable, we treat with modesty and, and all that poignant illustration. The point is every part is important. Christians are inseparably linked to Christ, and we never forget that. That also connects us to one another. We know we're different in serving in the church. There should be no jealousy in the church. We should recognize that our role is essential. It's important. You, you can't, uh, as Paul said to the Ephesians, uh, you cannot uh, abdicate your role in the church. We only are healthy when every part does its work. Okay? Number four, Christians must have mutual respect for each other. So much so that when one part suffers, we all suffer. There's no disconnect there. We care for one another. We mutually support one another. We respect each other. And then one of the interesting applications there we read was in Ephesians 4, and that is our interconnectedness because we are connected together in Christ and we fit together with all of our interrelated gifts and our service in the church, that should keep us from sinning against each other. And it's a very simple argument, but he says, hey, you're on the same team here. 
He uses the same logic in Ephesians, or, uh, Philippians, does he not, when he says to Iodia and Syntyche, those two gals that were fighting in the church, remember that? You know, he talks about them being, you know, they're, they're fellow workers, they're connected, they're like, he uses this word elsewhere, yoke fellows, we're together in this, and that togetherness should stop you from fighting one another. Stop fighting, we're on the same team. And that's a part of the implication or the principles drawn from the analogy as we read it throughout the New Testament. Okay, now, those are the five... I challenge you to do this on your own if you're skeptical. Those are the five principles from the nine metaphorical usages that relate to or, or, or are drawn from every time the word is used as it relates to one another. Okay? You didn't see some things there that a lot of people bring to the text presuppositionally. Let's make this observation. Formalized church membership right, cannot be based on any of the member texts. Okay? took a long time to say that, but no one should be able to argue with you successfully that somehow a church should have some kind of contractual, as, as I said at the beginning, cultural definition of some kind of card-carrying relationship with a church based on the biblical word member, right? Can you see now? Smile at me if you can see. There's no way you can make that point, right? Not from the biblical text. You cannot say this church must have a contractual policy, some kind of ceremonial or legal connection you must connect with one another because of the word in the Bible, member. Because you know, the Bible talks about members. Now, you guys have members? Do you see the illogical problem with that? It's not biblical. You're bringing your definition to the text. Okay? To summarize, if you want to talk about biblical church membership, okay? what we've learned to summarize those five principles, basically, is we're talking about everyone, team, substantially, right? mutually respecting one another, participating, being a part, serving, having some role to play. Everyone substantially participating. When you take the word membership and you lift it from the Bible, the idea of member, we come to an idea that's not card-carrying, sign on the dotted line, put your name in a file or carry around some contract that you've signed with a church, but everyone substantially participating. Okay? Now, with that said, you may say, wow, he thinks church membership is unbiblical. I'm not saying it's unbiblical. I'm just saying it's extra-biblical, and you know the difference there, right? It's not contra the Bible. It's simply supra the Bible. It's not in the Bible for us to follow and obey. It's something people for biblical and practical, I should say practical, not biblical, practical reasons, they, they add it. And there's nothing wrong with that necessarily, any more than me saying all of you need to wear red sweaters to church. There may be a reason for that, a practical reason, which I've never asked the church to do. But there may be formal membership church membership, that may be requested of you, right? When you leave this church, uh, some of you may not ever leave this church. That would be a, a thought. But if you go on to your next church and they have church membership, and by that they mean there's a formalized contractual thing like at 24-hour fitness or, or you know, the, the, uh, the, the, the country club or the AAA or the Republican Party, there's something you do to sign up to be a formalized part. If your leaders of your next church ask you to do that, by all means, you do it. Why? Because Hebrews 13 says they have a responsibility for you, and if that's what they're asking you to do, you do it. And if at some point at Compass Bible Church, if you're a part of this church, our pastors ask you to do that, something that looks like that, then you do it. You do it obediently. You do it because we've asked you to do it. You do it because there's some practical reason for it, and that's that. But that's far different than a lot of the folks that smugly say, you know, membership's in the Bible. Well, not based on any of the member texts, it's not. It's a lot of work to get to that? I was there already. You didn't need to go through all that. Well, we had to do something during the hour that we were here together. Um, 
I think it's important. And I, I, I just I feel so much of this, uh, whether it's the uh, elder thing or the member thing. These are important things for you to walk through from the Bible. Start with the Bible, biblically centric. There you go. Now, everyone substantially participating. Everyone substantially participating. There's something we talk about around here at, at Compass Bible Church. Matter of fact, it's one of our values here at the church, one of our distinctives. We talk about highly committed participants. Does that sound familiar? Highly committed participants. Guess what we're saying when we talk about highly committed participants? We're talking about everyone substantially participating. We're talking about the biblical idea of membership. Everyone here ought to be a biblical member of the church, right? Well, where's the class? Where's the form? There is no class and there is no form. But there is a call, an exhortation, an admonishment from the leadership that you be a highly committed participant. Those were carefully chosen words to try and express the idea of biblical membership. Okay? Was that an aha moment for anybody? Nobody. Okay, just me. Hopefully that's a connection that you'll never forget. Let's talk about this. And we don't have enough time to do all that I want to do with this topic. So we're going to go into next week as the schedule does say. If any of you are following the schedule, this is kind of highly committed participant discussion part one next week part two. Let's talk this through carefully, okay? What do we expect? And again, I'm trying to speak biblically, right? Though I know that we're going to speak somewhat provincially in some of the expressions of what we're talking about here, but you'll see that there's a distinction between the cultural membership and biblical membership, having some contractual policy connection with the church and having that highly committed participant or that substantial participation everyone substantially participating, you'll see the distinction here, even with the first criteria that must be met by every highly committed participant. Okay, here's the first thing. You must be regenerate, regenerate. And if you're a newbie here, hopefully you know that word. If not, regenerate, regenerate means to be born again, to be what the Bible says, justified, sins washed away by faith, repentance, you've been made right with God, you're genuinely a Christian. Now, let me ask you this. Is every member of the church a Christian? depends on how you define the word member. If you define it the way I'm defining it, the answer has to be yes. If you define it the way our culture defines it, especially if you go to a lot of places, uh, man, what about in the South? Everyone's carrying around a card carrier. They're a card carrier member of three churches in the South, are they not, most of them? Uh, man, there's all kinds of people that are members of churches that aren't Christian, right? You could find that out by spending a half an hour with some of them, and you'll say, that guy's not saved, man. There's no fruit in his life. There's contrary evidence that he's not a Christian, but they're members of the church, If you have a policy of membership, which I'm not opposed to, right? We just don't have one here. If you want to talk about biblical membership, that's what I'm concerned about. And in biblical membership, what I'm saying is every highly committed participant needs to be regenerate. Let's look at this passage together. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 18 through 22. Ephesians chapter 2, once you jot that down, verses 18 through 22. Now, I'm not trying to sound like an elitist or a purist or anything like that, because there are a lot of people in this church that I pastor that are non-Christians that call this their church home. Uh, and they even loosely throw around the word member, uh, and they, they'll call themselves. This is my church, this is my church home, but they're not regenerate. I recognize that. But true, highly committed participants right, are genuinely converted because they're genuinely connected to Christ. Look at verse 18, Ephesians chapter 2. For through him, through Christ, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. Do lost people have access in one spirit to the Father? Answer, no, they don't. They're not indwelt. They're not forgiven. They're not reconciled. They may go to church as the book of Hebrews just illustrates chapter after chapter after chapter. You can be involved in church and not be saved, 
You can be a member of a church in our culture, in our day, not that there was membership in the early church, obviously there wasn't, but in our day, you can be a card-carrying, policy-signing member of a church and not have access in one spirit to the Father. Keep reading, verse 19. So then, you who do have access in one spirit to the Father are no longer strangers and aliens, but your fellow citizens with the saints and members, melos, uh, no, not melos, uh, this is uh, the oikos adjective, members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. Watch now the shift in the metaphor. You ready? In whom the whole structure, now we're not even talking about a body anymore. Now we're talking about a building, which is metaphorical because we're not talking about a building. In this day, people met in their, in their uh, houses, not in church buildings in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Now, is a non-Christian ever built together into a holy temple, right, as a dwelling place for God by the Spirit? I understand that's an analogy and a metaphor, but the answer is no, they're not. Of course they're not. They don't have access in one spirit to the Father. They are strangers and aliens. They're not fellow citizens with the saints. They're excluded. They can sit through sermon after sermon and not be saved. So when we talk about people that are truly a part of the organization, really the only people a part of the organization, if we're talking about biblical membership, biblical connectedness, biblical participation, you have to be saved. Okay? Now, I know a lot of churches that have membership, obviously, and they'll want to try and check that box as best they can. Uh, and we do too. I mean, in a lot of ways, if you're going to be involved in some level of this or that, we want to make sure that we hear your testimony. We want to make sure you're saved. But that is a hit and miss diagnostic, is it not? Uh, we don't really know uh, with perfect knowledge. Obviously, we have, we have some clues. So we're looking for regenerate membership, and so is everybody else. But here's the good news. If you have biblical membership, which is the idea of only highly committed participants meeting the biblical criteria, then in a church like ours, if you're really a part of the body, then you are regenerate. That, that's, that's criteria number one. Criteria number two, water baptized post-conversion. Now, this is sounding a lot like, Pastor Mike, sounding a lot like just your normal, everyday church membership criteria that you would have at a church that has formalized church membership. I get that. I understand that. But let me show you why baptism, water baptism, as the ceremony, the initiatory rite into the church, is so logically a part of the basic criteria for being a biblical member of a church. And by that, I mean a highly committed participant. Turn with me to the classic text on this. There's so many, but we've dealt with a lot of them in the week. We talked about baptism, the ordinance of baptism. Let's go to this text and deal with this. And I know this is often quoted by people that believe in baptismal regeneration. Maybe we'll have some time to address this, though we looked at it in the Peter passage where we dealt with what it's not. Let's look at this text together. Now, verse 37, Peter's preaching, day of Pentecost, you know the story, crowds are gathered around. Now, when they heard this, Peter's sermon, they were cut to the heart. It's a bit of an idiom of being convicted, right? Feeling the pang of conviction. And they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said, repent, right? That's a summation of turning and trusting. doesn't use the word pastuo here or the word for faith, but obviously the idea of repentance and turning to God includes the grasping the source, of our, the, 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 the source of our forgiveness, Christ himself, and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Now, this is a grammatical text we could deal with and unravel another time, but clearly, though you could say grammatically, it looks like you've got to have both of these components to get forgiveness, 
even the rest of this context will show there's a, there's a problem with that thinking, and the rest of the scripture that's clear on the topic absolutely would exclude that interpretation. We've got to use clear text to interpret unclear text, and if this text seems to be out of step with the rest of the Bible, then we've got to understand that something's going on here, and I'll show you in a second the close alliance of these two things, why they're so important. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. The context shows us this is the water baptism rite that we've studied on week four or whatever it was that we studied it. And you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, save yourselves from this crooked generation. Oh, and by the way, sometimes language, when we see things like that, we're looking at something that's not the precision of a theological textbook. Here's another one, right? You would never want to say in any kind of setting where you think the pastor's listening and trying to figure out whether you have good theology or not, you wouldn't want to find yourself telling someone to save themselves, would you, right? No, that's where you shake your head. No, I wouldn't want to say that because... Christ saves us. God saves us. This is his work, right? This is not a theological textbook. This is the summation that Luke makes of Peter's preaching on the day of Pentecost. And here is another statement. This, I mean, it's obviously, it's not an untrue statement. It's just not the precision of the kind of statement that we might want to get the full-orbed picture of what salvation is. Now, obviously, you're making a volitional, willful response, which we already saw in the passage above in verse 39, that these are the people whom, whom the Lord calls to himself. So clearly, God is initiating this. But from our perspective and in our experience, we're calling out to God in repentance. We're calling out to the Lord, Romans 10, to save us, and he saves us. So in that regard, do something to get out of the mess that you're in save yourself, see? But I wouldn't want to build a theology based on the way it's said here to say, well, that's what we do. We all save ourselves from our sin. We don't, right? Okay, keep reading. For those who received his word were baptized. That even starts to clarify what's going on there in verse 38. They received his word. What was the word? The word was to get your sins forgiven by repenting of your sins and getting baptized. Well, they received his word They got this message and embraced it positively, responded volitionally to it the way they should, and those folks that did that were baptized. And they were added that day about 3,000 souls of the highly committed participants. Right? Why? Because it starts with an act of baptism. Now, I say all that, and here's the clarity that I want to make. You cannot be a highly committed participant. You cannot be someone who is fully and substantially engaging in what, the, what God has asked us to do in the church, unless you are, big umbrella word, obedient, right? You cannot do this if you're not obedient. Disobedient Christians aren't highly committed participants. They don't help the church. They hurt the church. They don't pull in the direction of doing what God asks us to do in the church. They pull against in a, in a way. They're a problem. They're not a help. To be a highly committed participant, we need obedient Christians, Baptism is the first volitional external act of obedience. I love that Dyer book that we hand out when we have people uh, get baptized here. We want them to read the book and the subtitle on that, or maybe it's the title, Baptism, the first act of obedience, I think, is that it? Something like that. That's a rough uh, paraphrase of it. But the first act of obedience, because that's what baptism is. It's not salvific. There's nothing uh, mystical or, or magical about it. Uh, it is something that we're doing in response to God that he's asked us to do. It's much like the tree in the Garden of, good, uh, of, of Eden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Was there anything, you know, uh, magical about the fruit? Nothing magical. About it. it was the act of doing it that was the act of disobedience. 
disobedience. Getting in the water and being baptized, it's not, a, it's not a mystical act. Nothing happens there in that pool other than the fact that you're being obedient, and that's significant. Just like eating from that fruit was nothing magical, it was just there was a major act of disobedience. Act of obedience, act of disobedience. You cannot come to a church, any church, right, and say, I'm going to come and be a contributing, substantial part of this team, and I'm going to be connected to Christ and pull together with you guys and be that highly committed participant if in your life you stand in disobedience to the very first request that Christ makes of you, which is be water baptized. Therefore, got a problem. We are not saying that that salvation hinges on you getting in a pool of water and being dunked. What we're saying, though, is you can't be the person God has asked you to be, and even in the most fundamental way, unless you've been baptized. Why? Because that's the first step and first act of obedience. Which, by the way, I hope would raise this topic up in your thinking, especially when you take people through the partners program, or you talk to people, or you win someone to Christ, and they're you know, willing to, in the privacy of your own front room, pray a prayer or say that they're followers of Christ. But then you say, great, step number one. Christ asks you to be baptized, and they balk at that, or they put the brakes up, or they say, I don't want to do that. Do you see the problem with that? The first step is a step of obedience, and that's what the life of the Christian life is all about. We can't go any further without that. I mean, I've had this happen, thankfully not a lot, but I've had it happen before. I can think of faces and names coming to my mind right now who I've I've led to Christ, I thought, and, and we had everything moving in the right direction. I can think of a guy, we, we were going through partners together. And, and I mean, oh, I want to study the Bible. I want to learn to pray, all this. We get to the section where we talk about baptism. I don't want to do that. Well, it's not an option, right? And I'm not telling you that. The Bible tells you, you got to get baptized. I won't go another week. I really won't go another hour unless you're willing to respond. That ended that relationship, right? Is it all oh, hard-nosed, meanie, Hitler, you know, autocratic pastor guy? No, that's just the Bible, If you are not willing to take the first step of obedience, right? We're really done talking about our connection here as it relates to the church. If you're claiming to follow Christ, right? So water baptized, and I say post-conversion because that certainly seems to be the clear understanding of that. We're not talking about some symbolic act that mirrors circumcision. We dealt with that on week four or three or whatever it was when we talked about baptism. So go back and hear that if you haven't. But what we're talking about is the first act of obedience in response to the Christian life. And some people obviously are not well-trained and they don't get that right away. But whenever that news gets to you, that you need to be baptized as an external sign of what's happened in your life, it needs to be responded to with obedience. If you don't do that, if you're not saved, not a member biblically. If you're not obedient to Christ, you're not a member biblically. And that starts with the first act of obedience, the imperative call to obey Christ through baptism. All right, let's keep going. Gets worse. submitted to, the, to their pastors. And we dealt with this a little when we talked about the universal church, but even that possessive pronoun, their pastors, okay? I know our culture fights against that. You got the floaters, you got the cafe, you know, uh, style Christians that go around there and, and, and it's uh, soup plantation and they get a little of this from that church and a little of this from that church. The Bible is very clear about the connectedness you have to a particular fellowship. Those are the contexts in which these books are written. That's the context in which these analogies are given. And so, I mean, I guess we should start with the fact that every Christian is called to a flock, right, to which they are to be connected, and that flock is under an under-shepherd, right, and a set of under-shepherds in most cases, and they should be able to know who their pastor is. 
which is a great way to, to, to deal with this. I thought of a guy who was very good in, in campus ministry back in the day, and that was his first question because it seemed to be rampant on the college campuses. No one wanted to be connected to a particular flock or a particular church. But that's a good question to ask people who claim to be Christians. I want to ask them right away, who is your pastor? And as a matter of fact, if you followed me around and listened to me talk to people throughout the week, uh, when, I, when I encounter people that I don't know who I meet out on the street or whatever, they find out I'm a pastor, what do we turn to Christ or we do evangelism and they say, I'm a Christian. One of the first things I ask them is not even what church do you go to? Who is your pastor, right? I mean, that's just, you, you, you can't be a member of, of, of the body of Christ unless you can identify this. This needs to be... Um, just where we start. Now, these are some passages we should look at. Let's, I think we looked at this in this series. I couldn't even remember as I threw this on the PowerPoint, but Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7, and um, we should look at that, which, by the way, is one of the reasons a lot of pastors decide to have some kind of formalized membership because of the definitions in this text as to what the pastors have to do in terms of giving an account. Hebrews 13, 17, countercultural, abrasive, ugly verse to so many people. Verse 17, obey your leaders and submit to them. This context is not the government, not your bosses at work. Context here is it started earlier in discussing following the example of the people that teach you the word. We're talking about the, the pastors in the church. For they keep watch over your souls. There's the reference that Paul made as he said goodbye to the Ephesian elders there, that picture of being the shepherd. They're, they're watching over you as those who will have to give an account. They'll have to give an account for how they oversaw you for your lives. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. How that's explained, there is a relationship that you have with the pastors in your church that you fellowship with. And again, a lot of people say, well, I'm in a fellowship with a lot of churches. Hard to be an effective member of two families. Have you noticed that? I mean, your kids, if they want to say, I'm going to do part-time with this family and part-time with that family, you're not going to agree to that. That doesn't work. Uh, We need commitment to a flock Uh, And in that commitment to that flock, there needs to be that uh, submission in my own heart, in my life, to the pastors that that lead that flock. Um, And obedience. I know that's an ugly word, but what's the point? Uh, You need to have an authority, a spiritual authority in your life, and you can't be connected to a flock without that clear connection. And by the way, obedience goes together with respect. And, and, and we need to look at these texts as well. Let me get, maybe get you to First Thess 5 once you jot that down. First Thessalonians 5. I've told you the story many times I know of the boy who was told repeatedly to sit down in class by the teacher. And when he finally begrudgingly sat down, he looked at the teacher and said, I may be sitting on the outside, but I'm standing on the inside. Um, you can obey your pastors and check the box, as fr- frankly some people do. I mean, they'll do what their pastors, if it comes to that showdown in their lives, they'll begrudgingly, you know, give way. But they don't respect the leadership of their pastors, and that is a problem. Um, I have so many illustrations. I will, in a godly manner, refrain from giving you at this point. But there needs to be, these, these two things go hand in hand. First Thess 5, let's start in verse 11. Look at how this is put. Therefore, encourage, this is a great opening statement about our relationships to one another in the church. Encourage one another and build one another up. Okay, that ought to be my perspective about everybody in the church, just as you're doing. We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and who are over you. There's the paradigm built in Hebrews 13. There's a relationship of submission and leadership over you in the Lord and admonish you. Uh, This is the word uh, 
we get the word nuthetic counseling from, nutheotai, to, to uh, admonish. That's a hard word. That's an ouch word. That's preaching that stings. Uh, respect, by the way, you should define that word too, I suppose. It's the word um, simply to know, and it's a bit of an idiom, but to, you're to know them. Now, it's not just you know your pastor's middle name or his favorite restaurant. That's not the idea. The context, and it's properly translated here, I believe, in, in the ESV, is to respect, to give them your, your deferential thoughts, to give them a sense of, of, of that you recognize their position is laboring and, and being over you in the Lord. Uh, And then here's another phrase, verse uh, 13, that's helpful. And esteem them very highly in love. There's the idea. I don't begrudgingly esteem them, but I I, I lovingly esteem them because of their work uh, and be be at peace among yourselves. So there's there's a mouthful there to take the kind of encouragement that we might naturally give when we feel like we're, you know, just kind of bros in the church, verse, verse 11, and then look to our leaders and give them our, our, our respectful thoughts, give them that attitude of respect because of what they're doing, even though they, they sting us by their leadership sometimes and they admonish you and correct you, and esteem them very highly, hold them highly in your mind uh, because of their work. They have a job to do, uh, and as it said also in Hebrews thirteen seventeen, if you don't do that, uh, it would not be an advantage to you. There's a lot of... Uh, veiled threat there from God, submitted to their pastors. Now, there's a lot of people, particularly in our day, that this is just not a part of their thinking. It's demeaning in their minds to even consider obeying the Scripture in this regard, but they they must. Let me take it one step further, because we haven't dealt with this text, I don't think, in our study yet. 1 Timothy chapter 5, and this is a, uh, I don't like the translation of this as well, because it's a little archaic in the way it's translated, but you'll get the idea, obviously, and some of you know this text as it's translated in other translations. But part of the respect and the esteem that you give to your leaders uh, is recognizing that they're over you in the Lord and you love them and hold them in high esteem and you respect them, you, you give them your thoughts deferentially and you obey them, all of that. Part of that, which is very different than the kind of um, attitude that exists in most people's thoughts about secular leadership, is a willingness to give them the benefit of the doubt. Okay? Here's how it's put in First Timothy 5.19. Do not admit a charge. That's the part of the translation I don't care for. I think the NAS and the NIV used to put it, uh, don't entertain a charge. Admit it means don't let it even into your heart or into your thinking, into your, your, your imagination or your mind. Don't, don't let it in to yourself. Don't admit a charge. Rebuff a charge would be another way to say it, right? Uh, against an elder, unless there's evidence, right? There has to be some concrete evidence, except on the evidence of two or three witnesses. This can't be someone with, a, with an ax to grind. So my heart needs to protect them. My goal is to hold them in high esteem, to recognize that their position is authoritative in my life and that I care for them and I love them in my thinking and holding them in high esteem. And then he says, uh, protect that thought. Everyone's going to try to knock them down in your mind. You need to be careful that before you start entertaining a charge or admitting a charge or taking them off of that, that, that respectful pedestal in your, in your mind, and that sounds so anti and contrary to everything in our, the mores of our culture, but that's the biblical picture here. Uh, I need to make sure before I ever uh, let that thought be threatened that I have concrete evidence from distinctive and, and uh, uh, objective witnesses. One more I know I feel like you may think this is self-serving. It's not. I'm actually saying this for your good, for the good of what the church is supposed to be. If you're going to be a highly committed participant, you need to be saved, you need to be obedient, and you need to connect with your leaders aright. You need to have that submission to your pastors. But Acts 23 is a great example for when even you're tempted to say, I don't want to do this anymore. Um, 
There are a lot of examples in the Bible, whether it's Peter talking about Nero, who's the uh, king, remaining in my heart, honor, honoring him, having that honorable heart toward the king. Or in 1 Peter 2, when it talks about your bosses at work, if you will, the masters of the slave and respecting them and obeying them even when they're harsh, which I tried to pull out in principle when the nuthatai, the, 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 heart, the stinging sermons come from your leaders to still hold them in high esteem in love. But this is a real contrasted example and an extreme dramatic example is the best way to say it uh, in Acts 23. Look at verse 1. Looking intently at the council, Paul was there on trial, you might remember. And he said, brothers, I've lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. And the high priest uh, Ananias said, uh, uh, commanded those who stood by him rather to strike him on the mouth, smack him. And, and Paul said, God is going to strike you, you whitewashed wall, right? Nice. It's good TV right there. That's awesome. Get him. You're sitting to judge me according to the law, yet contrary to the law, you ordered me to be struck. Those who stood by him went, ooh, would you revile God's high priest? And Paul said, you're darn right I will. Is that what he says? No. I didn't know, brothers, that he was the high priest. For it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. He's quoting Exodus 22, verse 28, where the command is given there about because of the position, not having that kind of terse come back to them. And I hope you have that with your kids as you raise your kids. Sometimes you'll find them bringing uh, playground talk home to the dinner table. And uh, hopefully it only happens, has to happen a few times if you're a good disciplinarian in your home. But when they start to speak to your wife or yourself like their classmates on the playground, there needs to be a, a consequential reminder that uh, you know we're not your classmates, right? We're your mother and your father, and you don't speak to us that way. Uh, and, and frankly, and I've made the decision, I don't care if you speak to your classmates that way, because it's not evil what you're saying, but it's not the kind of respect or honor you should give your mother and your father. Uh, the Bible sets that same paradigm up in the church. There may be ways that you speak of even your brothers in Christ, right, that would be not evil or sinful, but there's a certain kind of respect that you grant to your leaders in even the way you correct them and respond to what you believe that they do is wrong. And Paul lives that out in a very dramatic way. He's totally justified in disagreeing with the high priest. He doesn't like what he just did. It was costly to him. It hurt him. And yet his response when he found out who he was to back off and say, I shouldn't have done it that way. Not that he has to agree with him in that regard. And it's not even that he has to admit, you know, hey, you got the right to do this. Uh, although if you ask Paul that, I wonder what he would say, but he's certainly going to not respond the way he did. God is going to strike you. That's a threat. You whitewashed wall. That's an insult. Uh, and neither of those should be given toward people that lead. And that's the economy, you may say, of the Old Testament, but Paul brought it right into the New Covenant by living that out in Acts 23. Um, I guess I pile that all on just because the church and the health of the church Let's use the analogy of the body. The health of the body of Christ uh, is going to depend not only on whether we're genuinely converted and obeying Christ as best we can, but whether or not we have the right relationship to the leaders. And uh, I just exhort you in Christ, whether I get hit by a bus tomorrow and you got a new guy preaching to you all the time, and if all of our pastors die, you got new sets of pastors in. It's not about us as individuals. It's about the office of the, of the leadership of the church. Treat them with respect, esteem them in love, honor them. Uh, so much more said in passages like 1 Corinthians 16, we don't even have time to look at, but that's a good place to start. Love your leaders. And certainly I don't mean this to me and about me as I think about even the holidays right now. Uh, let, me, let me take a sidebar here. My Amazon wish list is, no, I'm just kidding. It's not about me. But I can say this. Our guys work really hard, 
and our gals to our ministry leaders. Um, these are challenging times in our economy. We have to cut back frequently. Unfortunately, we have to make decisions about, uh, you know, ratcheting back benefits. A lot of things that we do for the people that give their full time to governing and leading this church. Um, if God blesses you, I mean, obviously we want you to give to the church. That helps everything when we can continue to, to do good to our leaders. But, and I'm not saying this about me, please don't put me on your Christmas list. But if there are people in the ministries that you sit under that have blessed you, and I trust they all have, and even if they haven't been all that much of a blessing to you, uh, you should hold them in the highest esteem. You should put them on your Christmas list. You should give to them. You should, you should be kind and generous to them. They, they give. They don't give to get. They give to serve Christ, but they love you. And um, I would hope that, uh, you know, whether it's, you know, Mark serving our, our junior hires or Susan leading our kids men, that uh, you would not only remember to pray for them, but you would show them tangibly that you love them in, uh, in practical ways. And I think probably the, the most culturally acceptable way is this time of year, you know, bring them a basket of fruit. I don't know. Don't do that. That's probably not what they want. Maybe an Amazon gift card or something. But uh, love them. Show them tangibly that you love them. It's hard work. Uh, and again, I don't want that. Please, you'd be disobedient to me now if you took any of that and applied it to me. I'm thinking of our team, and I think of the difficulty and the struggle that they, they have just serving you guys so faithfully. We've been fasting and praying as a staff, by the way, just to go off on this sidebar because I see that I have a second here. Um, they love you guys. They serve you guys. They sacrifice for you guys. And we've been fasting and praying at the end of the year just as we look toward the new year um, in, in hopes that it's the best year we've ever had. And uh, I know sometimes there's challenges. There's challenges in our economy. There's challenges in our society. There's challenges coming as it relates to homosexuality and a lot of things in our culture that are going to increasingly make our jobs hard. Um, but uh, and I know you're in it with us and you're in the trenches with us, but uh, pray for your leaders, care for them. Every ministry leader, every pastor, uh, do that. That's your job. All right, one more, because I split the list up. Next week, we got more. But let me end with this, regularly attending. Now, again, this seems pretty simple, but if you're not saved, if you're not seeking to be obedient and showing that by the first step of obedience and baptism, if you don't know who your pastors are, you don't respect them and love them, uh, which, by the way, I should say this before I leave that one. If you can't respect your pastors and love them, go to a different church. Seriously. Don't be a pill and a pain in the butt here, okay? Or wherever, if you're listening online or whatever. Go somewhere else. If you cannot respect and love your leaders, go somewhere else. Let me repeat that. If you can't respect and love your leaders, go somewhere else. It will be great when you can find a place where you can love and respect your leaders. Uh, that'd be great. It'd be great for us. It'd be great for them. It'd be great for you. Uh, love to keep you here, but if you can't love and respect your leaders, go somewhere else. All right. Yeah, I was trying to summarize. If you're not saved... If you're not obedient, if you don't know your pastors and, and, and love and respect them, uh, you certainly can't be a highly committed participant, and you can't be a highly committed participant if you don't regularly participate. We're going to talk about the highly and the committed next week, but I just want to end our time together talking about the participate part. Um, we need to regularly attend. Um, the passage that I know you know, oh, I already put it up, didn't I? Hebrews 10, 23, and 24. Let me just read it for you. You know the text. Let us hold fast to the confession of our hope without wavering. He who promised is faithful. Let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not neglecting the meeting together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. The antecedent to all the more is not just encouraging one another, but meeting together. And if you don't recognize the need that we have to meet together more often now than we did as Christians 100 years ago, then you don't understand the text. We have to make it our habit in a darkening culture 
to be regularly a part of the church. That's why sometimes it doesn't make sense to buy the boat or buy the cabin in the mountains or the condo in the desert or whatever. I mean, sometimes it does. I recognize you have to for business or whatever, but a lot of times you need to recognize we need to spend our time together, which means I don't let other priorities get in the way of that. Uh, We make church attendance a bottom-line, fundamental commitment of our lives. Uh, We're not keeping attendance here, right? Uh, But it would be good for you to keep attendance in your own life to make sure that this is not something, as the text puts it, that is neglected. That's the habit of some people, and they do it to their own spiritual peril. Um, And and again, I I hope I'm preaching to the choir. You're not only going to church, you're coming here to Thursday nights, and you made it to the 11th lecture of 12, which is just, I mean, talk about the remnant, uh, right? I mean, that's you guys. So I'm preaching to the choir right now, but as you relay this information to others, you need to be saved, need to be baptized, need to know your pastors, love them, and submit to their leadership. You need to regularly make it a priority uh, to attend and be a part of it. We'll move further next week when we talk about some things we haven't covered in the gifts week, but I want to talk about those things next week. And by the way, I should say this, as long as I have a second. We're a large church, larger church, frankly, by the ecclesiastical definitions in modern Christianity. We're a mega church for whatever that means. It usually means you're over 2,000 on the weekends, and we're clearly substantially over that. So in a large church, we have to make decisions about how to program the church. We're not trying to create a programming structure that makes you come to everything that we have, okay? This is a church that has a lot of things on the menu, So don't think by what I've just said, I expect you to be at everything that we have. Or as the old adage says, that you're here every time the doors are open. Nothing wrong with that necessarily, unless you're doing that to the neglect of your work and your family. We know there has to be a balance of priorities in your life, but this priority cannot be neglected. One of the things we're going to do as our pastors, we spend time in the early part of the year just spending time, um, we go to the exotic city of Brea, uh, (laughs) just to get far enough away from the office to where we can focus together for a few days. Uh, One of the things we're going to work on this year, I'll let you know, if you're part of Compass, you need to know this, is how to better organize that menu of programming so that there's clarity about the stages of involvement. Uh, You go to a restaurant, it's not just a hodgepodge of things on the menu. Uh, There's, you know, starters, right? There's salads, there's main dishes, there's desserts, and you know how the progression goes. Uh, In the church, we recognize that we have that. It's just that we don't have a clear path as clear as we should have. We've talked about some things about chairs side by side, chairs face to face, you know, out of the chairs. But we're going to do a better job at trying to communicate that so that even the first-time visitor understands. If you're going to be a highly committed participant, a biblical member of this church, then what you need to do is realize there's some starter programs, there's some main dish programs, there's some, you know, uh, there's some dessert programs. That's not a good analogy at that point, but... I don't know what those would be. Uh, I all feel like green beans most of the time, right? But anyway, uh, the, the point is we're going to work at, to do a little bit of better, little better job at, at clarifying and streamlining that progression. Uh, but with that said, I know that some people, because they're zealous for their spiritual walk, they come in and just want to do everything that's on the menu and on the website at Compass. That's not what we want you to do. We want you to understand there are things you should participate in. Uh, small groups for one, but you could get small groups in, you know, home fellowship groups and thrives and men's Bible study. But we're going to help with that. Not that all of you need the help. I know intuitively some of you make those decisions and you say, I can't do that. I'm going to do this. I won't do that, but I will do this. But we just want to make sure you're not just feeding on appetizers. You know what I'm saying? That you have a a uh, well-balanced programmatic menu in your life. All right. Coming to church, I didn't have to hammer that too long, I hope, because like I said, you're the hardcore church attenders, I hope. But let's pray. God, 
As we move through this series and we think about membership, I, I, I know it may have felt a bit laborious in the middle of that first part of tonight's lecture, but please, for all those that don't know how to answer the question about membership, there's so many in our church that don't, I pray that we could have some clarity, at least when we talk about the biblical terms, what it means and what it doesn't mean, and uh, be able to say that uh, a church that doesn't have some formalized policy is not necessarily missing any of the biblical principles or the application of any of those principles. There are certainly decisions that sometimes lead a church to do that, but when we talk about what the Bible requires, biblical church membership, uh, clearly, clearly a church like this, not just to be defensive or apologetic, but clearly a church like Compass has got that, has got it uh, more clearly, I think, than, than many places, uh, not that comparison is the point, but God, the point is to make sure that we understand what the Bible asks of us, and as it relates to being uh, substantially involved, all of us together, I pray that we could have a real sense that you're doing that among us as you work in us and have us participate in the programs and ministries that we have going on here. And of course, as the Bible says there, we just read it in Hebrews 10, it is so important in our lives, even more important as we see the day approaching. And you said it would get a lot darker before the dawning of the new day, of the, of the coming kingdom. So we, we pray, God, in these dark times, we look at our economy, we look at the finances of, of our, our country, the, the, the debt, trillions and trillions of dollars in debt. We look at uh, the rise of Islam around the world. We look at uh, things going on just in the weakening of our uh, birth rate. And there's just a million things that make us see there are tough times coming, the social issues, the, the persecution of righteousness, the standards uh, you know, of vulgarity, everything else that we see that is pushing against every everything that the Bible has taught us to stand for, we know we're going to need to work together, encourage one another, spur one another on to love and good deeds even more as we see that day approaching. So make church uh, a centerpiece of our, of our lives. May it not just be a, a casual thing. May we be fully engaged in it, substantially participating, highly committed in all of this that it may strengthen us to be able to stand firm against the attacks of the enemy in our lives, and it happens in so many ways. So God, help us in this regard as it relates to the application of all that we've studied for the last 11 weeks. Thanks for this time to study ecclesiology, to study the church. Very important, and I hope it's helpful. It's certainly my prayer and the reason for my labor in putting this all together, that it might be good for this congregation to take these things and put them to work in their lives. So God, make that a reality as your spirit works within us and works in us and through us in Jesus' name. Amen.